And we see this conflict between Ishmael and Isaac and the bond woman, Hagar. She gets cast out, and we talked a lot about that and the symbolism there. Uh, then we talked about last week in Genesis chapter 22, where God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and how, how Abraham's testing was really a picture of the gospel. And we talked about how God, when God tests us, it gives us an opportunity to give others a picture of Jesus. And that was the focus of last week. We have CDs up there if you guys want to grab any to catch up, if you're going to continue to come, or even if you just want to listen to some of the services that have gone on in the past few months. Tonight, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 23, like I said. Now, this is a sad, sad chapter. Okay, so we just watched Abraham almost lose his son, almost had to sacrifice Isaac, the long-awaited promised son, just before the knife came down, the angel of the Lord Jesus Christ himself stopped this from happening, but this time a death is going to occur and the Lord is going to allow it to happen. So just the chapter before, Abraham almost loses his son. Now in this chapter, he's going to lose his wife. And sadly, uh, the story tells us that Sarah dies. But we know that God's using this. He's using this loss. He's using this death to shape and mold and transform Abraham. He's making his man through this loss. There's still a work to be done in Abraham. God's not finished with him yet. Nevertheless, there's, this, there's still something very tragic about death. Yet there's something very beautiful about death as well. Which brings me to the title of this teaching, The Tragedy and Beauty of Death. The Tragedy and Beauty of Death. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into the text. Jesus, we come before you, and we thank you for time of worship. Lord, we thank you for... Uh, the opportunity to, to, to come together and dive into your word and learn about you so that we might become more like you. Lord, as we uh, read this and unpack this um, sorrowful scripture, God, I pray that you would speak to each of us. Lord, that you would move in our hearts, that, you, that we would recognize, yes, the tragedy of death, but also the beauty, Lord, of what awaits uh, each and every one of us that know you. Lord, so speak to us. We came here to hear from you. In your name, amen. All right, picking it up in Genesis chapter 23. Let me summarize a little bit because I'm not going to read through the whole text right now. So Abraham, um, Sarah dies, uh, and then Abraham is trying to purchase a place to prepare uh, a burial ground for her, okay? And he's going to purchase this cave, essentially, um, so that's kind of the summary of the story and what happens, but there's so many things in this text that really connects to um, our lives as believers and eternal life, the life that awaits each and every one of us. So let's dive in. Genesis chapter 23, verse 1 says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. 
This is interesting. This is the only woman in Scripture whose age of death is recorded. Sarah, the only woman in Scripture. Now, you ladies are probably like, I hope they don't record my age of death ever. I won't even tell you how old I am if you ask me. But we have to remember that this was an honor. The Lord is honoring her by writing down the exact years that she lived before she died. See, the life of Sarah, the life of Sarah was an example for each and every one of us as believers, but specifically as women believers in the church. We see in 1 Peter chapter 3, in 1 Peter chapter 3, we see the Holy Spirit commending Sarah through the apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hand, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. This is speaking of the ladies, gentlemen. Okay, Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart and with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy woman, women who trusted in God, also adorned themselves, being submissive to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good or an, or, and are not afraid with any terror. The point is the life of Sarah, it's documented and it's recorded. It's so important because it's an example for us, especially the women in the church. We see in the New Testament this example of Sarah and how she was submissive to Abraham. Think about all the things that Abraham put her through. He tried to give her up twice. She was still submissive to him. That's like, come on. After the first time, really? And the second time, she's still submissive. She's a picture of what a Christian woman is supposed to look like in the body of Christ. And she's such a great example, and we could talk about her all night, but we're going to continue on in our study through Genesis 23 in verse 2. So Sarah died. In Kirjath Arba, what is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Sarah dies, for the wages of sin is death, right? We see in the garden because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, death was brought on the scene, and now Sarah suffers death. Abraham's response to the death of his wife is that he mourns right? He weeps, the Bible says. See, we weren't created to experience death. We weren't created to experience the loss of a loved one. That wasn't God's plan from the beginning. Death wasn't supposed to be part of the picture. Man, Adam and Eve specifically, brought death into the world. The wages of sin is death. So we weren't created for this thing, loss. We weren't created for this thing, death. So obviously, we're going to mourn we're going to grieve when we lose someone that we love we weren't meant to experience that but how we mourn and how we grieve is so important which brings me to my first point first of four let your mourning lead to healing let your mourning lead to healing 
See, there's a healthy way and an unhealthy way to mourn or to grieve. Let's first talk about the unhealthy way or the unspiritual way to mourn the loss of a loved one. We can all do it differently. Some of us guys will try to pretend it doesn't hurt. I'm okay. I'll harden my heart. It's all right. I'll get through it. I'm a man. I'm just going to man up and deal with this thing. No, that's not a healthy way to mourn. Sometimes we could get angry at God and blame God for our loss. God, it's all your fault. Why would you take this person that I love so much from me? See, there's so many consequences from mourning or grieving in an unhealthy way. Many people walk away from the Lord because of loss. Many people stop following Jesus because they've lost a loved one. Many divorces happen because of the loss of a child or the loss of a family member. That's all because people are dealing with this loss. They're mourning in an unhealthy and unspiritual way. So the way we mourn is crucial to the impact and consequences it has on our life. See, the Lord will use loss for good. He will use it. He will use loss for good, but the enemy, he'll use loss, he'll use death to divide a family. He'll use loss to destroy you. That's what happened to Pharaoh, right? What happened? God tried to get his attention so many times, so many times, so many times. Finally, nothing would work until God took his firstborn son. And at first, Pharaoh said, all right, fine, go. Go take your people, Moses. Go off into the wilderness. Go out into your promised land. But then what happened? His heart kept getting harder and harder. He's like, you know what? I'm angry at God for taking my son. I'm going to get back at God. I'm going to get back at his people. And in his efforts to get back at God, he destroyed himself. Now, there's many implications in the story of Exodus that Pharaoh was washed away in the Red Sea along with all of the Egyptians. We won't get into all of that, but Scripture points to uh, the implication that he was destroyed because he grieved the wrong way. If he would have just given his life over to God and be like, all right, I give up, Lord. We might have been reading a different story in Exodus. See, when we experience loss, we have a choice to do it in an unhealthy way and allow the enemy to get a foothold in our life. And we know the enemy's goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's going to use anything he can to do that. But we know the Lord, he takes things, he makes all things work together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So there is a healthy way to mourn. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, we're going to talk about the healthy way to mourn. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So how are we comforted when we're mourning? It's when we're going to God and we're talking to Him about how bad it feels, how much we hurt, how badly we missed that one that we love so dearly. He wants us to talk about the pain. He, his heart aches over death, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. See, so often the last person we want to go to when we experience loss is the only one that can bring us healing. 
And that's God. We're not going to win that. See, when faced with the loss of a loved one, we have no one else to turn to but God. There's a story in John chapter 6. Jesus is speaking to this multitude. There's all these people following him, and he says a heart saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. A bunch of them walk away. Then he says to the disciples, are you going to leave too? And Peter gets up and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words to eternal life. See, that has to be our response when we face loss. Okay, Lord, I might not understand why you do, did this, and I might have some anger towards you because I'm confused about why you allowed this to happen, but where else am I going to go? You alone have the words to eternal life. We must turn to the Lord if we want our mourning to lead to healing, but not just the Lord. We got to turn to the body of believers as well. We need to talk to the body, communicate with the body how bad we're hurting. See, so often when we experience loss, God will bring people into our lives that have faced the same or similar things. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you turn with me there, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, God comforts us so that we can comfort others. Now, my wife, many of you know she lost her mom um, a few months back, and she's found, thank God, just some, some very godly women in, in the church and mentors that she has, and she connects with them because they've experienced loss. They know what it feels like. Many of you in the church, you've experienced loss on some level, and because they have that experience and because God's walked them through that grieving process in a healthy way, they're able to minister to her, and they're able to comfort her and be there for her. And I'm confident as this healing process happens with my wife, she's going to be there to comfort others who have experienced the same loss. Maybe God allowed you to lose someone. There's so many different reasons, but so that you could be there for someone else in the future that walks through a similar thing. But it's not going to happen if you do it in an unhealthy way, if you harden your heart and get angry at God. See, knowing God, that, knowing that God will, will use our loss, he'll use our loss to grow us, he'll use our loss to shape us, he'll use our loss so that we can be there to comfort others. Yes, all of these things lead to a place of healing, but the, the greatest thing that we can think of, that we can understand um, that will bring us the greatest level of healing is when we understand or know or acknowledge that our loved one has experienced a healing that we don't even know right now. And of course, that is if they have accepted the Lord in their life. 
but many of us have loved, lost loved ones that are in the church that were saved. And there's a specific way to mourn for those that have accepted the Lord. And Paul talks about it here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. He says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Don't be ignorant. Don't sorrow like the world sorrows. Don't mourn like the world mourns. Yes, mourn because you're supposed to mourn because you weren't made to experience death, but don't mourn like someone who doesn't have hope. Mourn like someone that knows where your loved one went if they did indeed go to heaven. Because you know what they're experiencing right now? Paul tries to explain it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He doesn't say much. There's a lot of references to heaven, but I just love how Paul puts this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. If you could flip there real quick, he says this. It is doubtless, verse 1, not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, now um, if you study this, Paul's speaking of himself, he says, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. He's like, I, if I try to explain this to you right now, it, it, it's, it's probably unlawful. Human words, English words, Hebrew words, Greek words cannot do heaven justice. The things that I saw up there, and this attributes back to a time, scholars believe, when Paul was stoned almost to death. So he has this near-death experience. He's caught up to heaven. What he sees, he's like, I can't even say. Like, I can't even tell you the things that I've seen, the things that I've witnessed in heaven. So if that's what your loved one is experiencing now pretty much guarantee they don't miss being back here, okay? They're happy where they are, all right? If we only knew, if we could only taste or grasp or see, the Bible gives us some ideas, but, it, but it's nothing compared to what we'll actually experience. Back to Genesis chapter 23. Not only does it say that he mourned, it says that he wept for her, for her. Abraham, father of faith, he's weeping, guys, okay? It's okay for us men to weep. Sometimes I cry up here. Mike was just crying up here. It's okay. Mike, it's good. We get it. Abraham did it. Jesus did it. But in all sincerity, this is so interesting. This is the very first time that weeping is mentioned in Genesis. As you've gone through this study with us, you see Obviously, this is the first book in the Bible, so this is the first time a lot of things are being brought up. This is the first time, follow me, that weeping is mentioned in the Bible, and it's the weeping of a husband over his wife, a bride over his groom. Follow me here. See, God refers to Israel as his wife. 
Okay? God refers to Israel as his wife. If you want to write down a couple references uh, to save time, I'll just give them to you. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 1 to 5. The entire book of Hosea. Um, we also see that Jesus refers to the church as his bride in Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 25 to 27, okay? Follow me. So God, he refers to his people as his wife in so many different scripture references, and he weeps over them when they're faced with the consequences of sin. He weeps, he mourns over his bride, he mourns over his wife when they're faced with the consequences of sin. Flip with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. This is Jesus. It says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city, speaking of Jerusalem, and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Okay, in context, Jesus is prophesying of what's gonna happen to Jerusalem when Rome comes and destroys the temple and just takes the people out. But he's weeping over the people because of their, the consequences they're going to face for their sin of not accepting him as the Messiah. Follow me? See, God mourns, he weeps over his bride, over his people when they're forced to face the consequences of sin. God hates the destruction that sin brings, even to the wicked. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, God says, I take no pleasure in the one who dies, even the wicked. Like God doesn't even take pleasure when the wicked die. He's upset and brokenhearted when even wicked people die. He hates when people have to face the consequences of their sins. It tears, them, it tears him up inside. So if God weeps over his people when they're faced with the consequences of their sin, we should share this same perspective. What do I mean? We should be those that mourn over our sin when we fall into sin. Which brings me to my second point. I promise we'll finish Genesis 23 tonight. I promise. Mourn over the effects of sin. Mourn over the effects of sin. Yes, we know the wages of sin is death, but there's other consequences that come when we choose to live sinful lifestyles, even here in the church, even us as the bride of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. See, when we truly mourn over our sin, it will lead to change. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 
2 Corinthians chapter 7. It says, Godly sorrow leads to repentance. When we really understand and get sorrowful over the sins that we commit against God, it will lead us to a place of repentance. It's when we accept our sin and we just brush it off and act like it's no big deal that we'll continue in it. If we get to that place where we're truly sorrowful, where we're mourning over our sin, that will lead us to a place of repentance. God wants us to mourn over our sin. He wants, us to, lead, he wants to lead us to a place of godly sorrow. Why? Because he doesn't want us to face the consequences of it. He doesn't want us to be prevented from the abundant life that he has for us. He wants his bride to experience his best. But we need to want that for ourselves as well. We should get to a place where we're mourning over any sin in our lives that's bringing any aspect of our spiritual walk to death. Because Jesus wants a bride that's alive. He wants a bride that's thriving. He doesn't want a dead bride. Right? Abraham didn't want his wife to be dead. Jesus doesn't want his wife to be dead. What do I mean? Flip with me to Revelation chapter 3. Now, we already established that the church is the bride of Christ, right? This is a specific church that Jesus is speaking to and he corrects them. Look what he says here. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, it says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, it's Jesus, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Dead bride, church of Sardis, you have a name that you're alive, but you're really dead. See, we can fall into this as well. See, this church, God's doing so much. This church is alive. This church is thriving. People are coming more and more each week. It's amazing. Calvary Chapel, Running Springs, you have a name that you're alive and thriving. But what aspect of your spiritual life is dead? What area of your spiritual walk is, is dead? Maybe it was alive, but now it's died out. Simple things. It could be your devotional life. It could be your prayer life. When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? Evangelism. What about making disciples? These are all things that God's called us to. These are the basic things that he's called us to. And so often what happens in the beginning, we're so zealous and excited about doing everything God tells us to do. And we want to tell everybody about Jesus. And we want to pray all the time. And we're constantly in the word. We want to know every single verse and what every single thing means. It gets a little overwhelming. But as time goes on, sometimes those different aspects, those different spiritual disciplines can die out. So I want you to ask yourself, what spiritual disciplines, what aspects of my spiritual life are dead? They're not alive. They're not thriving anymore. A dead bride is no good to anyone. 
Jesus will give you that strength. He will revive you so that you're alive and thriving again. That's what he wants for you. That's what he wants for me. That's what he wants for each of us. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 23, verse 3. Hey, we will get through this. The beginning, there's a lot, okay? And then it'll speed up. Look what Abraham, okay, verse 3. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Listen to this. In the light, in light of Sarah's death, Abraham is reminded that he's just a visitor in the land. You see that? After she dies, he runs, I'm just a visitor here. Which brings me to my third point, and I'll explain. Death reminds us that we're just visitors. Death reminds us that we're just visitors. Now I'm speaking to our Christian walk. Death is a painful reminder, but it's also a reminder that we're not of this world. We're just passing by. We're just visitors in a foreign land. Our lives are temporary. They're but a vapor. They're gone in an instant. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says it like this. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven. Okay? Our citizenship is in heaven. In light of this, in recognition of this, the fact that our citizenship is in heaven, we should live as heavenly citizens here on earth. Well, what does that look like? In Matthew chapter 6, we're all over the place tonight, I know. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, there's many ways to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Um, I'm not going to overwhelm you with all those ways and all the crowns that we can potentially receive in heaven but just simply loving God and loving people. Just let's, let's focus on that. Loving God and, and, and loving people. Loving God, that's a way to lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven because what are we going to do for the rest of eternity? We're going to be worshiping God. That's what Revelation chapter 4 and 5 teaches. us. We're going to be worshiping the Lord. So that's what we should do here on earth. Spend time with God. We're going to be spending time with Him for eternity what it means to be a heavenly citizen. Pray to him, worship him, get in the word with him, spend time with him. Loving people, yeah, minister to people, encourage people, share the gospel with them, invite them to church. There's people here today that I invited to church and they've been coming now. It's great. It's awesome. It's like, come on, just, just tell them about, come on, come to church, share the gospel. We can love on people. We can lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. There's actually a crown for evangelism in the Bible. We've talked about this a few weeks ago. I don't want to get into it. It'll take too much time. But think about this. Remember, in heaven, we're going to be worshiping the Lord forever. 
But he's not going to be the only one there. All these people in here, anyone that's truly accepted the Lord in their life, the whole church body in the world that's ever existed is going to be there as well. We might as well learn to love them. You're going to be spending eternity with them. Come on. You got that person in the church that you just like, man, I can't, I can't sit next to them anymore. I can't stand talking to them. They're always talking to me. They're always, you know what? If you don't learn to love them now, God's probably going to put your house right next to his or hers. <laughs> learn to love them now. Do it now. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Focus on being a heavenly citizen now. These people, these are the people you're going to spend eternity with. Learn to love them. Look what happens here. He says in verse 4 of Genesis 23, I'm a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me a property for a burial place among you. What's Abraham doing? He's preparing a place for Sarah. He's preparing a place for Sarah's death as Abraham prepares a place for Sarah, we know that the Bible tells us Jesus is preparing a place for us. All right, it's John chapter 14, verse 2 and 3. Flip with me there. John 14, verse 2, he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus, he's going, he's preparing a place for us. In Revelation chapter 21, it talks about this place, the new heaven and the new earth. It says there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more sin, there'll be no more death. It's going to be complete perfection. This place that he's preparing for us. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have heard this. I, I, I didn't make this up, so I got it from somebody. I've heard it a while back. Um, you guys know who Tim Tebow is? Yeah, Tim Tebow, famous football player, won the Heisman at Florida Gators. I'm an FSU fan, um, but still, he's a great guy. He's a Christian. He just got actually uh, signed to play baseball after not playing for 17 years since high school, and I was playing on the Braves. So there's a story. Um, so the Pope dies, and he goes to heaven, and he meets Peter at the pearly white gates. And not that heaven's really like this, but just follow me. <laughs> and Peter's like, here, let me, let me show you. Let me show you where your house is, okay? I got a, we, got a mansion, we, got a, we got a little house for you. So he's walking up, and he sees this little house, and it's like kind of small. It's like... Okay, and right next to his house is this huge, glorious, beautiful mansion. In this mansion, it's got like gators, like University of Florida gator um, signs on it. It, got, it has Tim Tebow posters. It's got Broncos posters. It's got so many different things all about Tim Tebow. And the Pope's like, what's the deal? It's like, well, I get this little house and Tim Tebow, football player, he gets this huge mansion. Peter goes, no, that's not Tim Tebow's house. That's God's house. God's just a big Tim Tebow fan. So anyways. <laughs> hey, I'm a Florida State fan, so it's just funny. All right. <laughs> He's going to prepare. 
place for us. Look what he says here. He says, that I may bury my dead, verse 4, out of my sight. See, though, though Sarah was dead, God still had a work to do and a mission for Abraham. So Abraham wants to bury Sarah in a place that's out of his sight. Why? Because if her grave or her burial grounds is so close, if it's, if it's right in front of him, if it's something that he has to walk by on a daily basis, that's going to cause a lot of emotion, right? That's going to prevent him from fulfilling the mission that God has called him to. So he says, not that he wants to forget about her, but he's like, let me put her in a place so that I can move on. I know I need to move on. I need to mourn, and then I need to move on. Verse 5, it says, And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you this bur- his burial place that you may bury your dead. Look at these sons. They respond to Abraham and call him my Lord. They say he's a mighty prince among them. See, they have respect for Abraham. They revere him. They honor him. Why? Well, I'm not sure, but they've probably seen God's faithfulness displayed through Abraham's life, at least have heard about it or actually seen it. And they they have respect for Abraham. He's gained their respect. Picking it up in verse 7, it says, Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. Abraham's response to their honor is humility, which will come up in a moment. Verse 8, it says, And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and meet with Ephron, the son of Zophar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Mechpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field, let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of this city of his city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that's in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. Now, this was a bar- bargaining strategy of the ancient uh, people, and I'll explain in a second. But look at how Abraham responds again in verse 12. Then Abraham bowed himself before the people of the land. Again, Abraham doesn't respond with pride, but with humility. He receives honor from them. This guy calls him Lord as well, and he gives honor back. This is a biblical principle that is taught in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Romans chapter 12, verse 10, it says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. The ESV says it like this. I love this. It says, Outdo one another in showing honor outdo one another instead of saying give preference to one another prefer others treat others better than yourself prefer others better outdo one another in giving honor that's what Abraham's doing he receives honor they call him my lord and he bows down 
He's like, no, I'm at your service. I'm not above you. I'm beneath you. He's identifying with the lowly. See, he receives the honor, but then he gives even more honor. He gives respect to this man. Picking it up in verse 13, it says, And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. Take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered, Abraham saying to him, my Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. So the field of Ephron, which was in Mechpelah, which was also Mamre, I don't know how to say that. Mamre, Mamre. The field and the cave which was in it and all the trees that were in the field which were within all the surrounding borders were deeded. Okay, so this was a bargaining strategy, as I said. Uh, I just wanted to get through the, the, what actually happened. So basically, um, the person that owned the land, especially in the, the setting of someone passing away, they would offer as a courtesy to the person who had the loss of a loved one, they would offer them the land. Now, it's like kind of like they are offering it, but they're not really. They're just trying to be nice. Like the other person on the other end would then say, no, I want to pay for it, which was expected. You know, they weren't like, oh, you're just going to take the land. That's not what they did. That wasn't the custom. But then the person that was getting rid of the land for the burial site would offer a really high price. And then they would begin the bargaining thing. So he offers 400 shekels of silver, sell it for 400 shekels of silver. And then Abraham was supposed to come back. No, I'll give you 50. Or they were going to go back and forth. But Abraham, he doesn't do that. He says, no, I'm going to pay top dollar because I love my wife so much. And I don't want to dishonor her burial site with this bargaining thing. I just want to pay top dollar for this thing. And I don't want to owe you anything. He doesn't want to take advantage of the situation. Super honorable on Abraham's part. Pick it up in verse 18. It says, To Abraham, as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who went, uh, who went in at the gate of this, his city, and after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Mechpelah, before Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So this is the land of Canaan, important to know. So the field that the cave that is in it were deeded, so the field and the cave that, that was in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. So this is the only place in Scripture that we see Abraham actually tangibly owned. But what do we know? that God promised all this land to Abraham. He promised all the land of Canaan to Abraham. Let me make the point. Last point. Allow God's promise, speaking of the promised land, allow God's promise to produce humility, not entitlement. See, Abraham was technically entitled to this land. God had promised it to him. 
But how does Abraham respond? He doesn't go and say, you know, dude, this land was given to me by God. I don't care if you think you own it. This is my land. I'm the father of faith, bro. Come on. You know, my God, he owns all this stuff and he's given it to me. He's promised this to me. No, Abraham doesn't do that. He responds in humility. He wanted to make things right by purchasing the land so he wouldn't offend anyone in the land. This is the promised land. Canaan, this is a picture of heaven for us, the promised land. See, we're entitled to heaven, if you will, but how do you respond to that promised land? What do I mean? See, we don't only get heaven. We also, the Bible says, that we're going to rule and reign with Christ here on earth during the millennial reign. That's Revelation chapter 20. We're going to rule and reign with Christ here on earth. So technically, our inheritance is, yes, heaven, but we're also going to rule and reign with Christ. Let me show you just a couple of verses. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10 This is speaking of the church and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. We're going to rule and reign during the millennial reign. Like I said in Revelation chapter 20, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12, you can write it down. If we endure, we will reign with him. And there's so many other Uh, scriptures specifically in Revelation, but I'm just trying to get the point across. So think about this. So we're going to rule and reign with Christ. So technically that's promised to us. We are going to rule and reign with Christ on this earth, but are we going to go around and start claiming the land? Like, are we going to go around and start saying, this land is my land? Because I'm a son or daughter of the Most High. And he said, we're gonna, this was promised to us. This is part of our inheritance. And you know what? If I'm going to rule and reign with Christ, specifically during the millennial reign, I want to claim my land. I want Hawaii. I'm going to claim Hawaii. I want Hawaii. I don't know what you want. Maybe Fiji or Australia. Some great parts of Australia, right? <laughs> but in all sincerity... Abraham, this land is his for the taking, but he doesn't take advantage of his position. He could just claim it, but he doesn't. He does the harder thing. He chooses the harder thing. See, just because we have the right to do certain things doesn't mean we should. Hey, we're sons and daughters of the Most High. We're sons and daughters of the living God. There's a lot of blessings and promises that are attached to that. But we ought not take advantage of it. Let me just, look, let me just show you one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're almost done. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is Paul speaking about uh, essentially the rights of uh, of an apostle, generally the rights of a, of a minister. And I love this heart of Paul, very similar to the heart of Abraham. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse, verse 9, it says, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written... 
that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of this hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? He's saying, if I invest spiritual things, should we not be able to receive material things? If others are partakers of the right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. So what Paul's saying here specifically is, hey, I'm not taking advantage of the people, even though Jesus says, hey, if you preach the gospel, if you're a minister of God and that's your full-time gig and that's what you're primarily focused on, you deserve to be provided for materially, financially. But Paul's perspective is, I don't want anyone to discredit the gospel or ever say that I'm preaching the gospel to gain something for myself. Now, you might not be a, a, a minister, a full-time minister of the gospel, but this is really the takeaway. It's better to sacrifice some of the things that you're privileged to if it gives others the opportunity to see Jesus. If you sacrifice some of those things that you're entitled to, it could be finances, period. Yeah, I earn my paycheck, but what are you doing with it? Are you giving any away? Are you sacrificing the things that you're privileged to to give others the opportunity to see Jesus? See, Abraham, he technically owned this land in the eyes of God. God had promised him this land, but he pays for the land because he doesn't want to cause any of these people to stumble. And this place, this place where Abraham buried Sarah um, is is a big deal. It's the same place where Abraham was buried. It's the same place that Isaac and Rebekah were buried. Uh, Jacob was buried Leah here. Uh, And then Joseph buried Jacob here. And then Joseph asked the people to bury him there. So there's many famous patriarchs that are all buried in this place. And this place actually exists. But in closing... I want us to consider this death, the death of Sarah, okay? We're all going to die one day. Every single one of us. Every one of us in this room, unless you get lucky, um, like Elijah, you get caught up early somehow, some way, chances are you're going to die, or unless the rapture happens, okay, before our time comes, which hopefully it does. But other than those rare occasions and the timing of the rapture, when it actually happens, we're all going to die. Now, I'm sure you've heard it said before, but on our tombstone is what? A date, a dash, and a date. Our lives are defined by a little dash. 
by just a little dash. Really? It's like we died. That's it. It's just that little, tiny little mark of time. Your dash could be 80 years. It could be 20-something years. It could be 127 years like Sarah. But what will you do with the dash that's been given to you? See, time's a gift. God's given you that little dash. Will you be remembered like Sarah, a person of faith, a person of faithfulness, a person of honor and respect? How will you impact the world for the sake of the gospel with your dash? So, a month or two before I came to the Lord, I'm just going to finish with this. Um, my mom's best friend's husband, his name was Steve Anderson, um, he passed away. He had liver cancer, and it took him pretty quick. He was like, they won the lottery, my mom's best friend, her husband, and it's like, they're the type of people that you want to win the lottery. They're believers. They did so much and continue to do so much good with it, okay? And he died, and I remember I was in my addiction. This is before I came to know the Lord, and I remember sitting at his funeral, and this place was packed. You couldn't fit any more people in this church. There was people outside waiting. He was a firefighter. He was a paramedic. He was a Vietnam vet. He was like, he did it all. And I listened to person after person come up there in tears, people I've never even seen before, and talk about how this man so greatly impacted their life. And I knew Steve was a great guy, but I had no idea how great he was. In that moment, when I looked at it, I said, dude, what would happen if I died today? And I was the one up there. What would they say about me? Yeah, he was a great kid, and then he got hooked on drugs. And no one could trust him. And nobody wanted anything to do with him. And I'm like, who would even come? And I remember thinking, man, that, that, that stinks. I want people to say about me what they're saying about him. And God used that because he was a believer. God used that as one of the pieces of the puzzle to bring me to accept the Lord. See, his death, God allowed the loss of that life to bring me life. And I look at that and I'm like, man, I want to have a dash that's worth talking about. I want to live a dash that impacts people, that inspires people to live for the gospel, to love God, to love on people, to impact their communities. That's the kind of dash that I want to experience. If tomorrow were your last day, what would you do? How would you be remembered? How would your dash be defined? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for um, the beauty that's brought through death. God, you literally um, bring life through death. It was your death that brought life to us, the opportunity to experience life with you on earth and eternal life with you in heaven. God, and I pray, Lord, that you would just stir in our hearts to do the most with the time that we have. Lord, I pray for each and every person in this room that when we get to heaven, that you would say, well done, good and faithful servant. God, that's my prayer for each and every one of us. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.